All right, welcome back to a bonus episode of the Blasters and Blades podcast. So, hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans, time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies, a place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. So without further ado, let me tell you what we're doing right now. We're getting ready to uh, release some of the archive that we found from when we were the sci-fi shenanigans. Uh, we're going to get those up there for, for the posts that were brought down. We thought you might enjoy them. Um, and so without further ado, let us uh, let us roll that beautiful... Oh, wait, they're going to sue me. Play it. Hey, all these crazy sci-fi fans. Time for your daily dose of insanity over here at the Sci-Fi Shenanigans Podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions. A place where the sky's the limit, space is a place, and nerds run the world. And without further ado... All right, welcome back to another episode of the Sci-Fi Shenanigans Podcast. Today, I'm rolling solo. Um, both of my co-hosts had uh, job commitments, so it's just me, JR, today. And our special guest, we have Jack Campbell, who sometimes goes by the name John Henry. But uh, we're going to call him Jack because that's what he's written under, and I want to keep it simple. That's the infantry way, the KISS method. So Jack Campbell is a pseudonym for John G. Henry, a retired naval officer and graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland. Uh, as Jack Campbell, he writes the Lost Fleet series of military science fiction novels, as well as the Beyond the Frontier continuation of the Lost Fleet and the Lost Stars series, a spinoff of the Lost Fleet. He has also written the Stark's War series and the Sinclair's uh, Jag in Space series and has written many shorter stories featuring space opera, fantasy, time travel, and alternate history. Many of these stories can be found in the three Jack Campbell ebook anthologies. He lives with his wife, the Indomitable S. Uh, that is her name, people. A checker birth certificate, if you don't believe me. Uh, and three children, uh, two of whom are artistic, in the sunny state of Maryland. Uh, or at least it's sunny sometimes. It's not like Philadelphia where it's always sunny. <laughs> no, <laughs> Dad no. jokes. Um, sorry, it's the best I got. Dad jokes, I mean. So the second part of the introduction, dear listener, is uh, how we found them. But before I do that, did I get everything right on the intro? Yeah, pretty much. Yep. Perfect, because I shamelessly stole it from your Amazon page. <laughs> so uh, I actually first found Jack through his books. Uh, someone recommended The Lost Fleet to me after I finished uh, Tim Taylor's um, Human Legion series, and it was amazing. Um, so, you know, what more is to say? Anyway, uh, when I first started writing, I actually wrote you a letter, sir, which you graciously responded to. I don't know if you remember. It was about two years ago. Um, and so when we started this podcast and we had enough episodes under our belt that people took us seriously i knew we had to reach out and the rest was just a matter of scheduling so welcome to the show sir thank you glad to be here so the first thing we like to ask our guests sir is the religion question star wars star trek or firefly yes <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a universalist when it comes to such things as long as it's well done the universe doesn't matter all right. Um, Fair enough. So is there anyone that you have a favorite or are you not going to commit? Um, I suppose the sentimental favorite would be Star Trek because I saw the uh, original series uh, in the movie theater on Midway Island. So oh. I was seeing it on the big screen whenever other people were just watching it on TV. Yeah, that's one of the things that you could do when you're in the in the military. Sometimes you got to see really 
movies that weren't intended for the big screen on big screens. So mm-hmm. we did that when we were in Iraq. In fact, one of the times we were in Baghdad, they had, uh, I think they were watching, oh, what was that? Uh, Lost was really big, and they were watching that on the on the big screen. So, so what is it about science fiction that you love? Uh, I suppose the the biggest thing about it is that it lets you look at things from totally different perspectives. You can take a familiar situation and set it somewhere else, and change the names of the players and gain a different way, different appreciation of what's going on and uh, how it appears to other people. It, it really lets you play around with how you see things. And I think that's tremendously important because, you know, you get familiar with seeing something, you don't really think about it. So science fiction helps you think. Fair enough. So what is your first memory of watching, reading, or playing games in the genre of science fiction? I think I was in fourth grade when uh, I saw in the school library a copy of The Mastermind of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs. And uh, at the time, I was really big into history and mythology. And I picked that book up and I started reading it and said, oh, my gosh, here's somebody. They made up their own history. They made up their own mythology. And this is really cool. So Edgar Rice Burroughs was, was my gateway drug, as it is for so many people. Uh, have you gone back and read it now as an adult? Mm-hmm. Does it stand up for you yes. to your memory? Sometimes you find those childhood books that you read and loved, and you go back to them, and you're like, yeah, what was I thinking? Well, um, the Mars books are interesting. Edgar Rice Burroughs is interesting because in, in many ways he's a lousy writer. <laughs> he does a lot of things, uh, coincidence and uh, um, just remarkable things that just don't make any sense at all. But he's an amazing storyteller. So even as a, a writer of some experience and reading over these things and seeing all the problems with the actual writing, at the same time, the story was so compelling that I'd say, okay, fine, let's keep reading and find out what happens next. So it's, it's an interesting example of how to, um, how to tell a story so well that it really doesn't matter how good the writing is. Fair enough. So how did your love of science fiction as a genre transitioning into you writing your own novels? Well, it's uh, I wanted to try writing, and uh, this was something I'd always enjoyed reading. So I wanted to try to do the sort of thing that I'd enjoyed so much to see if I could uh, create that same feeling in other people. Uh, if I could play with ideas and settings and everything else uh, in the way my favorite writers had. So I decided to give it a shot. Well, we're glad you did, sir. So what's the uh, single largest influence on your writing? Is there one author that you've enjoyed or that you try to emulate, an experience you had as a child? What is it that you try to um, emulate when you're writing your own stories? Um, if In terms of author, if I had to name an author, I'd probably name two, and those would be Robert Heinlein and Andre Norton. Uh, but I think the biggest experience was I mentioned earlier watching Star Trek on the big screen in in the movie theater, the original series. And, you know, on the big screen, the original series, the special effects and the sets and the makeup and everything didn't always hold up very well. But what that did was it made it clear when you were watching it that what made this story great wasn't the special effects or the sets or the makeup. It was the characters and the way they were interacting, and the stories they were in. Uh, and I think that's always stuck with me, that what matters isn't the flesh and the chrome, it's the people in the story, how they relate to each other and what they're doing, and 
and what the overall story is. And that's what I always tried to remain focused so on. So was there any uh, one story by Heinlein or Andre Norton that, that sticks out in your mind by both of them? Or is it just the body of their work? Pretty much the body of their work. Um, you know, Heinlein in particular had a wide range of, of, of things. Uh, but just that uh, that general approach of uh, excitement and adventure and, and thinking about things. Okay. So let's transition from the writing side and talk about things from a fan angle. So have you gotten any cool fan art or had anybody cosplay your characters yet? I have gotten some fan art, uh, but it's it's been related to my Pillars of Reality uh, science fantasy series. Um, so I mean, it's still really cool. I haven't seen any cosplays yet, but I'm hoping. That's the hard thing about when you write science fiction and people are in battle armor. It's a little bit harder to do that than, say, you know, cloth cloth costume yeah. from, you know, whatever other world. Although it has been done, uh, I think, at uh, one of the RavenCon one year, I saw someone that made, like, seven-foot-tall armor for the uh, Warhammer 40K. But he was so tall, he oh, couldn't yeah. leave the lobby. <laughs> so, and if you wonder what Warhammer 40k is, dear listener, that'll be in the show notes. But if you don't know, just go smack yourself because you should know. Uh, yeah. But yeah, that's uh, that's one of the things about science fiction that when you write military sci-fi, sometimes it's harder to get those cosplay. You got to really want it if you're going to make something like that. So, finally, yeah. uh, before we start talking about the series, we invited you here to talk about what's uh, the weirdest or funniest story about an interaction with a fan you've had since you started writing. Well, I think this would definitely qualify as weird. Uh, one of the um, novellas I wrote was called Sword and Saddles. And I wrote it because I realized there had been, been very many science fiction stories set in Kansas. And there hadn't been many science fiction stories involving the U.S. Mounted Cavalry. So I decided to write one about a, uh, a company of U.S. Cavalry that gets uh, knocked from... Uh, Kansas in the 1880s into uh, an alternate North America. It's kind of a tribute to H. Beam Piper. But uh, after I had written this story about this uh, cavalry company disappearing from our world, I got an email from one person who uh, said, said that uh, this didn't really happen. Why are you writing stories about stuff that didn't happen? Why are you lying to us? And I was like, I don't even want to try answering this. <laughs> There's a reason it was filed under fiction. Okay. Yeah. That definitely qualifies as weird. Maybe it was uh, a joke that was just lost in transmission. <laughs> All I right. Hope so. so now, dear listener, this is the part where I list out the various series that he has written as Jack Campbell. We have the Genesis Fleet series, the Lost Fleet series, the Lost Fleet Beyond the Frontier series, the Lost Star series, the Pillars of Reality series, the Legacy of Dragon series, Stark's War, a Paul Sinclair series. Uh, the Lost Fleet Corsair graphic novel series. They look amazing. I'm going to have to buy them when I get paid again. Uh, the Last Full Measure, a standalone story. Swords and Saddles, which he mentioned, a standalone story. The Sisters Paradox, another standalone story. We have Beyond uh, Borrowed Time, excuse me, a standalone. So It Begins, a standalone. Um, and I didn't even realize you'd written all those until I prepped this, and now I'm going to have to talk to my wife about maybe she can give up her chocolate for a week or something so I can buy these books. We'll see how that goes. Uh, if you don't hear from me, dear listeners, send a search party. Uh, we have Breach the Hall, a Defending the Future anthology. By Other Means, a Defending the Future anthology. Ad Astra, a Defend uh, anthology. 
Um, and I will say, uh, dear listener, we've talked about this in, with other authors, that uh, as a trad pub author, some of his books are harder to find because they're not linked but in series. And if you want to find them, you got to really want it. But this one is worth it. So, you know, follow those links on Amazon. Seriously, it's worth your time. Um, I know that's something that's way outside of your control. But uh, anyway, so while all of those sound like amazing books, um, today we're going to talk about his Lost Fleet series, specifically book one, The Lost Fleet, Dauntless. So how did you come up with the idea or premise uh, for this series? There were actually two uh, inspirations. One of them came when an author who was writing in the Star Trek universe asked us if it was possible to do a long space retreat in Star Trek. And we all said, no, that wouldn't work with Star Trek. You'd either be caught right away or you'd get away. But it got me thinking, could you do a realistic long retreat story in space? And the classic long retreat story is Xenophon's March of the 10,000. And, you know, could I do that in space and make it um, feel real, right? Uh, But I didn't know how to do it, so I packed it in the back of my brain. And another thing I'd been thinking of for a long time was... Uh, the sleeping hero stories, legends. Uh, the most common one in the U.S. or in the West is uh, King Arthur, where you've got this great hero from the past who isn't actually dead. They're sleeping, and when their people really need them, they're going to come back and save the day. And everybody agrees that uh, there were real people behind these legends. And, you know, I was wondering what would happen if this real person did indeed wake up and discovered what everybody thought they were, and everybody's saying, save us, save us. And how would that be? And that also is just set in the back of my mind for a few years. And then at one point I realized I could combine those two, and together they okay. made the Lost Fleet. Um, that's a good way to start it. Uh, whenever you throw King Arthur in there, you've got my attention. So uh, when I read the blurb and several of your reviews, there's obvious comparisons that jumped out. This seems very similar in the, in the vibe to uh, Patrick O'Brien's Masters and Commander series. Uh, well, except that it's set in space. Uh, but the same ambiance, I think, that you created. Was this sim- uh, similarity intentional or just happy coincidence? I think it was more uh, coincidental than anything else. The fact that I was trying to create a, a very realistic setting in space to treat the whole thing as if it was really happening and all the characters as if they were real. And so when you do that, it's, it's going to uh, um, have a feeling similar to any other realistic depiction of uh, command and uh, responsibilities. Now, when you were in the Navy, were you a line officer? So was this uh, tapping into your own experience when you were active duty? Yes, I was a line officer setting out, later transferred into Intel, but uh, remained uh, surface warfare qualified the whole time. Okay, so dear listener, I will, in case you don't know, uh, throw a link to line officer so you can get a quick explanation. But in a nutshell, for the Navy, that's the uh, officers that command ships as opposed to support or medical or law. So, right. um, so the premise also sounded similar to what David Weber did with his Honor Harrington series. Now, were you aware of that series? Was this intentional when you started writing this? I was aware of the series. I hadn't read any of them. So any uh, the premise and the other stuff was, was coincidental, again, um, because I, I certainly uh, wasn't familiar with any details of what Weber was doing. Um, it just worked out that way. 
Okay. I, well, I got that one from, from your reviews. And I think some of that is Weber is one of the ones in a world where everyone's riding space Marines that he threw a lot of space fleet in there. I think mm-hmm. that's what makes it stand yeah. out. So whenever you have somebody else writing, you know, focusing on the Navy as opposed to the swashbuckling space Marines, the comparison's going to be thrown mm-hmm. out there. So not to say this series, dear listener, doesn't have plenty of action. It's just main character is a, is a swabby. So uh, some of your reviewers also compared this to the iconic Buck Rogers. If he was merged a little bit with uh, Douglas MacArthur, MacArthur, excuse me, can't speak today. So was that uh, in your mind when you were writing this or? Um, no, <laughs> I can honestly say it wasn't. I mean, I'm, I'm well familiar with Buck Rogers, the comic strip in the original uh, Armageddon 2400 AD novel. Um, certainly they probably had some influence and uh, historical commanders certainly had an influence on it. But uh, Buck Rogers meets MacArthur. No, <laughs> I didn't uh, set out to do that. Well, when, when I read that comparison, I kept thinking, did I have anything where uh... – We've worth Patton in there. That would have been a fun one. Buck Rogers with Douglas MacArthur and Patton. <laughs> Th- then you'd, you'd be on to something. <laughs> so. Oh, wow. Blood on the decks, I tell you. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, when you're standing in the middle of a desert shooting at a plane with a pistol, it's, it's kind of hard to top that. Yeah. Although MacArthur was close. So uh, finally, some of your reviewers thought that your, res- uh, your universe reminded them of Horatio Hornblow- Hornblower series, but in space. Um, was this story written? Uh, was the story by C.S. Forrester, excuse me, uh, part of your inspiration in addition to the uh, the track and the uh, King Arthur type legend? Uh, well, I have read the the Hornblower series, of course. Um, so I'm sure that uh, in many ways it did inspire me. One of the things I liked about it particularly was that he recognized how the burdens of command alter what the character can do as they rise in rank. You know, once, once you're the captain of the ship, you can't go out on the raid. You've got to send somebody else, which can be extremely difficult. So certainly um, those aspects of the sailing Navy played a role in, uh, in the story that I told as well. Okay. There was definitely some of that damn the torpedoes full speed ahead in, in your story. Um, and so now mm-hmm. we're going to talk about the story itself, which is the uh, the fun part of the interview. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your main character and what makes him unique in a crowded field of science fiction? Well, um, John Geary, he's just a, considers himself an ordinary commanding officer. Um, he's uh, part of the Alliance Fleet, large spacefaring organization. And his a convoy he's escorting with his cruiser gets attacked by a surprise attack by the syndicate worlds, the bad guys in the in the universe. And he manages to hold them off long enough for the convoy to get through and carry a warning that these surprise attacks are coming. And he's thought to have died in the attack. And uh, the Alliance is desperate for heroes as it's fighting this war. So they play him up to be the greatest hero ever feeling that he's safely dead so he can't show up and cause any problems. Well, it turns out he's uh, he's frozen in survival sleep in a damaged escape pod. And he's found about a century later. The war's still going on, and it's had uh, pretty serious uh, impacts on society and the military and everything else when you fight a war for a hundred years. So he's um, horrified to discover that everyone he knows is dead, and to see the changes in his people 
that have happened in a century of war. And they're all looking to him to save the day. And he knows he's not this amazing hero that the legends say. But at the same time, he has to do his best to be that person in order to save the Alliance and the people who are counting on him. So he has to balance the need to try to be the hero with never believing he's actually this amazing person who deserves this special treatment. Um, it's a, um, He has to deal with immense responsibilities and yet keep his head level, you know, never believing that uh, he's being uniquely singled out for glory or, or bad things happening to him. He has to live up to these challenges. So one of the things I'd heard when I was uh, active duty, when I was in the Army, was that when someone got the Medal of Honor, even though it was the highest award for bravery and most of the people that got it didn't live to tell about it, one those who had earned it and lived, that they could never stay on active duty because they were never they would never be treated the same and allowed to do their job. And so most of them, you know, at that by the time they're getting it, they they you know gone on to civilian life uh, to the greatest degree possible. Obviously, World War II was the exception. So I liked that about your story where you showed what would happen and why that's that you know is believed to be true because, I mean, he didn't get the Medal of Honor, obviously, but he was essentially revered like he had and then have him come back and have to deal with you know, all of that with no other choices. That was, that was definitely interesting. So that was, that was where I done. Were you familiar? I don't know if the Navy has that belief, but I've heard that in the army. Was that something that you had heard? Well, just, and, and looking at historical examples, you know, of, of people who've uh, received high awards and how do you, how do you acknowledge that and deal with them afterwards? Um, and I was very impressed with, uh, um, those who have gotten the rewards and gone on to just do their job afterwards, you know, it's just one more thing as far as they're concerned in their resume. And they're still just an officer who's doing their best. So, um, that certainly played a, a part in, in creating the character. Okay. Was there any secondary character that was especially memorable to you? Uh, and if so, could you tell us a little bit about them? Well, there were quite a few. I mean, uh, part of the uh, idea behind it uh, with with my hero was that he recognizes the need for people to second-guess him. So he has kind of this uh, sort of like Nelson's band and brothers around him, other commanding officers who he uh, talks to, and he expects them to give him candid assessments, and he listens, and he decides whether or not to follow it. So there's a lot of those. But there was one character in particular I created, uh, who's a civilian with the fleet, Victoria Rion. And I made her on purpose because in fiction, oftentimes, the good people, people on the side of the good guys, are good people. They're fun to be around. They're, you know, they're all working together, etc. And Victoria Rion was, is someone who is very unpleasant to be around. She's on your side, but you can't really like her very much. And I put her in there on purpose to uh, to illustrate this idea that somebody can be a really valuable ally, and yet you don't really want to spend a lot of time with them. Uh, and uh, certainly in the first few books, the response I got to her was, why don't they shove her out the airlock? <laughs> but then uh, as, as the series went on, I heard more and more of, of people um, liking her and recognizing the role she played. So she's probably 
the most significant secondary character. Do you see her getting her own spinoff at some point? Um, well, spoilers. Um, <clears throat> that can't happen. <laughs> um, something happens at the end of uh, the Lost Fleet Beyond the Frontier Leviathan. I'm going to have to go back and reread everything. But it's okay. I've got them all on audiobook, dear listener, and you should too. So uh, does your story have a bad guy that uh, that they have to confront? Um, obviously no spoilers is it just the syndicate fleet it's it's primarily the the syndicate worlds um a dictatorial power um he also has to deal with a fleet culture which because of a hundred years of war a lot of what he thinks is is necessary discipline is kind of broken down the uh fleet commanders have been much have uh, been much more political trying to gather support from fleet command, uh, commanding officers of the ships and wheel and deal their way to command of the fleet. And he has to deal with that culture, as well as some people who are, are working behind the scenes. They've decided that uh, the reason they haven't won the war is because the Alliance government itself is at fault. I mean, they're fighting, their friends are dying. It can't be their fault. So they're working behind the scenes to try to undermine the Alliance government and, of course, uh, Geary himself, thinking they're doing the right thing. But uh, what they're doing, of course, would betray the cause. So he has to find out first that they're out there and then figure out who they are and figure out how to uh, compromise them. And at one point he runs into one fellow who's sort of like MacArthur, um, uh, Captain Falco, who's uh, quite certain that he is the answer to all the Alliance's problems, and everybody just needs to follow him and do what he says, and everything will be great. So he has to deal with the, the problems created by that. So kind of a real-world situation as far as uh, many different uh, fires going on that he has to deal with at once. Okay. So finally, is there anything that you can tell us about your universe? Uh, there, in many series, the worlds where the story is told is as much a character as the protagonist or antagonist. So um, why don't we give the listeners a, a hint of what they can expect from the universe where you have several series uh, residing? Well, it's a, um, as real as I could make it in the sense that, you know, you've got these ships that have to go really fast to get anywhere in space. Um, they're constrained by light speed. So inside the solar system, they're only going to go about uh, 0.2 light speed or so. And everything like sensors is light speed limited. So if something is one light hour away, you're seeing what they were doing an hour ago. And if you want to send them a message, it's going to take an hour for your radio transmission to reach them. And so their uh, their sensors tend to be passive because that picks up the uh, information much faster than any active sensor would. Um, <clears throat> so because these ships move so fast, I figure it wouldn't make sense for them to slow to a stop to engage each other, as you see in uh, a lot of these things. So very fast, rapid engagements, milliseconds long as they clash and then come around to do uh, long repositions, sort of like... Um, SR-71s trying to dogfight. Okay. And uh, um, weaponry that matches that. They've got 
particle beams, which they call hell lances. Uh, for close in, they've got what they call grape shot, which is grape shot. It's um, metal ball bearings, which is a great weapon in space. Nice kinetic weapon. And they've got um, missiles, which can uh, engage at, at a certain distance. But because the ships are so fast, you've got to be pretty close to each other to engage. Um, and then uh, the, the way they get from star to star, there's two different methods. There's the jump drives, which go f into jump space. But to enter jump space or leave it, you have to do it at a star. And <clears throat> their distances are... Uh, the range of the jump drive is limited. So pretty much you have to jump from star to nearby star to nearby star. And then there's another uh, faster-than-light system which was created while Gary was in his survival sleep, and that's um, the hypernet gates, which are linked in sort of a quantum manner. So you go in one, you're not really traveling as far as the universe is concerned, but you come out the other one far away after a certain period of time. Um, so I've got faster than light, we've got particle beams, no teleporters, um, they use shuttles so that I can have pilots, because um, you got to have pilots in, in good military trans, uh, good military fiction, right? And, um, and of course we got Marines. Okay. Well, this is the part, dear listener, where we pause to shamelessly shill for the man. So bear with us through this commercial interlude. Under 30,000 feet of water, the exploration rig Leaguer has discovered an oil field larger than Saudi Arabia, with oil so sweet and pure, nations would go to war for the rights to it. But as the team starts drilling exploration wells in their race to claim the sweet crude, a deep rumbling beneath the ocean floor shakes them to their core. Something has been living in the oil. Pauli Cooley's The Black is a techno-horror thriller reminiscent of movies such as Leviathan and The Thing and puts terror right into readers' ears. The Black, a free podcast novel available from shadowpublications.com and iTunes. Ocean exploration will never be the same. All right. Welcome back. Thank you for sticking with us through the commercial break. We are still here with Jack Campbell, author of the Lost Fleet series and several spinoff series in that universe. So we were just uh, done. You were telling us about the series um, in the universe, excuse me, that the series is set in. Um, so one of the questions I have that I, when you were telling us about Blackjack, I sort of remembered. So one of the things that you did when Blackjack came back is you dealt with what happened to his family that he left behind and how his name uh, affected them. So how did that come about? Was that something you intended to do that you added on the spot? Yeah, I, just, I pretty much thought about what's the legacy of uh, a hero. You know, somebody like uh, John McCain coming off a uh, your your grandfather was an admiral and your father was an admiral. So what are you going to do? Um, it it uh, uh, that kind of thing is is sort of a, a ghost constantly hovering over someone when their uh, their ancestor has done something. So I wanted to show the impact of this on his family on, on a very human level. That it's not wow, this isn't wonderful, but it actually creates some serious problems for his family. Okay. So another thing that I was thinking about when when you named the series 
each of the the first series is the Lost Fleet, and then Dauntless, and then several other ship names. So, was that your intention naming it that way going forward? Was that something that was just a, you know, the publisher said that would be a good way to do it? Uh, that was my intention going forward. Uh, one of the things you don't think about when you're first starting writing is how hard it is to title books in a series because the titles have to be uh, consistent in a way to tie the series together. And you can very quickly find your hands tied by whatever your first title was and trying to find out ones that are consistent with that for, for follow-on books. So Lost Fleet was my third series, and I figured, okay, I've learned how to do this now. I will just name each book after a ship. And that way, I've got all these ship names to use, and uh, they'll provide nice, strong names. And it's it's worked out pretty well in that respect. Uh, plus, the, um, the ship names I'm using are the sort of um, universal qualities um, that appeal to us in ship names. You know, sort of things that Royal Navy ships have that people just read them and say, yeah, that sounds like a great ship. Um, rather than uh, names of individuals or battles that people may not know of. So was there ever a fear then when you're using uh, ship names that were aspirational qualities that you would run out of synonyms before you ran out of book ideas? Well, I wasn't sure I'd have more than six books to start out with. Uh, so um, it is getting a little more difficult now, certainly. Um, but... Um, I mean, there's a lot of different names. I keep threatening to use Indefatigable as a, a book title. but uh, That would be a fun one for people to spell. That's right up there with Cthulhu. Yeah. Nobody knows how to spell it. Yes. In fact, there's even a book out there about the joke is that nobody knows how to spell Cthulhu. Yes, Cthulhu is hard to spell. Mm-hmm. All right, I'm going to throw the Cthulhu links in there so you know what we're talking about, dear listener. As usual, my overly thorough um, show notes will be available for you when you listen to this. So Dauntless is clearly part of a series. I know because it says so in the title, and even a stupid grunt can Mm -hmm. figure that out. There are currently six books out in this series with several spinoffs. Will there be more from these characters? Where do you see this universe going in the future? Well, I just finished the Genesis Fleet trilogy, which is uh, a... a prequel set centuries before the Lost Fleet, because I wanted to set out what the alliance was a little more, how it had formed. And now it uh, it looks like I've just gotten a good offer for a follow-on trilogy, which will pick up where the last Lost Fleet book, Leviathan, left off. So that will probably come out, first book in that trilogy will probably come out next year, and that will continue the direct story of... Uh, Blackjack and everybody else in the series and and what happens uh, after the events in Leviathan. So do we ever get a chance to see the universe through the eyes of, and sometimes, dear listener, we ask questions we know the answer to, because you might not know, but do we ever get to see the universe through the eyes of the syndicate, or do you only stay with the Alliance as the point of view characters? Well, I did do that. The um, Lost Stars series which is set in a syndicate star system. And it's sort of a, well, the example I was thinking of was uh, England when Rome was crumbling, you know, and you have the local leaders trying to um, establish a a follow-on system. (coughs) So the Lost Stars is about these um, 
people who were raised in the syndicate, uh, the leaders in particular, and they're trying to come up with something new. They've never been taught anything else, any other way to uh, rule except by uh, threats of assassination and lying and every other manipulative way to go. And they're trying to come up with something new. So uh, that was very interesting. Um, and it was it was a lot of fun to write. But it, it tells how things, how the syndicates people view things. How, um, and uh, how, how the syndicate empire is now crumbling and, and why it's crumbling. So that's, uh, that was a, um, a fun exercise. So is there any plans to go back to that series with those characters, or is that story done in your mind? I think uh, in the new trilogy, I'm going to be merging those storylines with uh, uh, the Lost Fleet one, because um, I mean they, they always uh, interwove with the Beyond the Frontier series, but they... Um, <clears throat> they also uh, merge in a sense at the end of Beyond the Frontier and Lost Stars. So I will probably merge a fair amount of that in with the uh, the follow-on trilogy that's coming. Okay, so we've mentioned, dear listener, that uh, Jack was a naval officer. And so in the Army, we have things called sand tables. I know the Navy has an equivalent where you wargame it on a sort of 3D map. Was that something you did when you were writing these stories? Well, I, I learned how to handle relative motion with large objects when I was a ship driver. And I think that helped a lot in being able to visualize the 3D actions in space. Plus, I used um, what the Navy calls aviator hands. You know how when pilots talk, they, they move yeah. their hands around to show here I was and there he was and that kind of thing. That actually works pretty well for figuring out where someone is relative to someone So you got else. to play Top Gun for a little bit. Um, <laughs> yeah, in a sense. But, uh, you know, I'm using I'm using ships which are, well, they're, they're sort of like ships and sort of like aircraft, but mostly they're spaceships, so they're different. But nonetheless, being able to, uh, to, to figure out if someone's here and someone else is there and what happens, what, how do they need to move and uh, then factoring in the time differences created by the fact that the distances are so huge. Um, I just kind of did it in my head and I'm not sure I could have, I'm not sure I could have worked it out any other way than, than in my head because it's, it's complicated. Okay, that's fair enough. I think the uh, three-dimensional aspect makes that a little bit more complicated than telling stories of uh, grunts on the ground. You know, because even if you're in a spaceship, it's still, for the most part, you know, three-dimensional works. Um, I imagine you'd need, like, string and things hanging if you were going to try to do that <laughs> with spaceships. So, all right. So one of the things you've noticed in the uh, the literary world is there's a trend for shared universes uh, as authors open their worlds up for other authors to tell side stories, et cetera, in. Is that something you've thought about with your Lost Fleet universe, or are you uh, keeping that one all for yourself? Um, thought about it a little bit. Um, not really going for it yet, though. Um, so it's a possibility for the future, I think. But we'll see. So a semi-firm maybe. <laughs> I got gotcha. you. Maybe. 
Maybe. <laughs> okay. So we all know that every literary universe has its own internally consistent technology and rules of science. Um, so you've mentioned a little bit about how your FTL works and the Hypergate system. But other than that, um, what else can we expect from your universe? You said no teleporters. What about ray guns? Are we going to get our ray guns finally? <sighs> Well, you get energy weapons, of course. Uh, they use slug throwers, but they also use energy weapons, uh, which have their advantages and disadvantages. And they have uh, you know, EMP grenades to, to deal with that kind of thing. Um, the, the Alliance has one weapon they've developed, uh, which essentially um, disintegrates anything it encounters. But it's a very short range, and it's big, so it's only on their biggest ships. Um, probably the biggest thing about the uh, the internal science is that it's uh it conforms to newtonian physics and relativity as best as i can it's you know momentum matters and it takes time to speed up and slow down and it costs energy to speed up and slow down um and uh, they they limit their speed their velocity to 0.2 light speed because as you go faster and faster the universe gets distorted well, you have a hard enough time hitting a ship if you've got a clear view of the universe. If your picture of the universe is getting distorted by your velocity, you have no chance of getting a hit. So everybody has to keep their velocity within a certain range if they're going to have a engagement. So would you consider this a hard science fiction um, take on space fleet stories? Yeah, yeah, you could say that. I mean, I didn't put it in there to be hard science fiction. I put it in there because it's the sort of difficult thing that you face in the real world. And what matters in a story isn't just what the characters can do. It's what they can't do. It's the limitations on your movement and your actions, because that's what drives the conflict. You know, I want to be over there and do this, but I cannot get there in time. So which of the bad decisions available to me am I going to pick as a result? So by putting in that, that technology, I, um, but the, the actual physics, I limit what my people can do. So just like a real-world commander, they can't just say, oh, I'll just recalibrate the shields and that will solve my problem and nobody will have to die. No, they actually have to deal with uh, um, this real, these trade-offs forced by technology. And, you know, logistics plays a big role. Uh, the fleet has accompanying it these things called fast fleet auxiliaries, which aren't fast. They're basically floating self-propelled factories, which can travel along with the fleet and create new fuel cells, um, construct new expendable weapons. They're, they're critical, but they're also, therefore, an Achilles heel, and he has to spend a lot of time protecting them and getting new raw materials for them because logistics plays a big role in, in the decisions a real commander makes, and I wanted to have that in there as well. I think that's part of what made the universe feel so real. So how much of this Newtonian physics did you know? Because I know at the academies, everyone is essentially an engineering major, no matter what your diploma says, because you take so many of those classes mm -hmm. by requirement. So was that something you were already familiar with, or did you have to learn as you were prepping for the story? Yeah, basically the Newtonian stuff I picked up, you know, in the fleet at the academy or in the fleet, just, uh, you know, maneuvering a ship, you get a good feel for the Newton's laws of motion. And of uh, how long it takes to turn something that that weighs a lot. Um, that's that's where I mostly pick that up. The um, 
of the higher end physics, the relativity, the quantum mechanics. I've, I've uh, picked that up over time just to um, try to familiarize myself with it. As a matter of fact, I've I put together a um, presentation, a PowerPoint presentation called uh, Everything I Needed to Know About Quantum Physics I Learned from the Three Stooges. Because you can use Three Stooges <laughs> okay. sketches to illustrate principles of quantum mechanics. Uh, it's, it's kind of scary, actually, but uh, um, it's, it, it actually works. <laughs> Is that something you've got available for, for your readers to buy? Well, I can't. No, it's, it's not available to buy at this point. It's just uh, something I give at conventions sometimes. That's awesome. All right. So does uh, your universe have aliens in it? And if so, how do you go about creating them? Do you let nature inspire you or do you try to create them out of whole cloth? Well, that's spoilers again. Uh, but so I, we can't answer whether well, there are aliens. I, I can say that the way I do aliens is I try to make them really alien, you know, not just people with funny foreheads or ears, in that they think differently. They think as well as we do, but they think differently. So a big challenge for the humans is figuring out, okay, we would not do this. They're doing it. It must make sense to them. Why? Um so there's uh, my aliens are, you know, partly based on what we know about biology and different species and everything. But uh, they, uh, at the same time, are not uh, easy to understand. Okay. So um, when you prepared for this this universe. Um, cause this is, I'm, I'm throwing questions at him, dear listener, because my mind's going a million miles. Cause I've loved this series. I've read it like seven times, but, um, when you were preparing for this, did you sketch out a, a universe map where all the systems are, or do you keep that in your head? That was pretty much in my head. Um, one of the, the fan art I've seen was, uh, um, some fan actually it was a fan in, uh, France did the first one, put together a star chart, uh, based on the books. Uh, his name was Jack Bublé, and uh, that uh, map actually appears in the, the later books where um, to to give a picture. But uh, basically, it was in my head prior to that. Okay, I was going to ask because if there was one I could buy on a print for my desk, <laughs> I'd totally be doing that. But uh, if you said it's in the later ebooks because I've got the audiobooks. I'll go buy the ebooks if it's Oh, uh, the ebooks don't tend to have maps and charts in them. It's one of the real weaknesses of ebooks. Um, they're, they're in the printed versions, particularly in the, uh, the uh, UK editions and the French editions. But um, I'm going to have to learn to speak the King's English, I guess, because <laughs> France is a little bit, French is a little too much for me. Huh. So, all right. Well, we are going to transition to the reviews. Um, I skim the reviews as I always do, dear listener. This helps the right reader find the right books. So remember, please be kind and speak your mind on the reviewing platforms. That's uh, Amazon, Goodreads, uh, BookBub, anywhere where you buy the book or people talk about books. Reviews matter. So the first book in this universe has 622 reviews at the time of recording with a 4.3 star average rating, which is way too low. Clearly a five-star book. Um, but let's look at the negative reviews because they can be equally as helpful in proper book selection. So one of the readers hated that your book ended on a cliffhanger. So does this reaction surprise you? I see that a lot, but then so many authors do it. I wonder if that's something they love to hate or they really do hate. What do you think about the take on the cliffhanger? Well, it's... Um... 
I mean, it's a series. It's not going to wrap up the story in the first book, you know? Um, I think uh, anybody going in, if they're told this is a series, should expect that it's, <laughs> there's going to be some unresolved issues at the end of the book. Uh, it's not really, uh, particularly Dauntless in particular, isn't a cliffhanger in the sense that, oh, God, there's an immediate crisis. Uh, it's just, well, we haven't made it home yet. we got to keep trying. Um, so, you know, uh, I think this is a, a case where somebody was looking for something to complain about. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Now, how long were the was the were your books on average? It's hard to tell sometimes with audio. Yeah, uh, they average a hundred thousand to one hundred twenty thousand words. Ooh, so that's a long book. I thought so. I wasn't sure, but um, I've seen some complaints that uh, people complained a book was too short and yeah. I knew it was like 90,000 words. I'm just, you know, what do you want? A Sanderson novel? Yeah. Yeah. Basically they've, they've been spoiled by these, uh, bug crusher fantasy books, which are, you know, thousand pages. And, you know, I'm sorry. That's, uh, uh, science fiction, uh, hasn't gone in that direction. Uh, their, their books tend to still be, oh, well, 120,000 words. When I, first uh wrote my first series the stark books the publisher was asking me for 60 to eighty thousand words and then the the second series the sinclair series they said uh try to make it 90 and now 100 120 is pretty much the the norm for science fiction i think and i know with indie you tend to see about 75 to, to 90 range mm-hmm. is the norm um so, but, uh, yeah, I, I didn't notice that at all. So I felt like it was a good ending point where you, where you split it. Cause you know, shy of selling it for a hundred dollars in all six books at once or something, I didn't know what else you could have done yeah. for a series. So, uh, this one is a little bit controversial. So one of your detractors felt like, uh, their complaint was that your, the writing style was too simple, which this is where it gets controversial because I find that amusing as other people on the five-star review section like that about your book, comparing your writing style to Tom Clancy. So does this polar opinion on the same issue surprise you? Um, no, it's, it's, it's pretty common. Usually the negative reviews will knock you for the same thing that the positive reviews have praised you for. <laughs> um, so it's one of the reasons you can't take negative reviews too much to heart because, uh, you know, when you've got a hundred people saying, yes, I love the characters. And then you've got one person comes in and says, oh, the characters are wooden. Um, okay. Can't please everybody. And that's yeah. pretty much what it comes down to. Um, my philosophy for writing is that I'm trying to convey the story. I'm trying to get across what I want to get across rather than impress people with how, how strangely I can use the language. So I do tend to write in a, a pretty simple, straightforward style. And again, that reflects the influence, I'm sure, of, of writers like uh, Heinlein and Andre Norton. And that's just how I like to write. And a lot of people like to read that, I think. I enjoy it. Um, helps you get lost. If I mean, I enjoy Shakespeare too, but you know, when you're reading his, you're thinking about almost as much about interpreting what he's trying to say as you do about you know, the story, mm-hmm. which are, you know, ageless for a re- timeless for a reason. So I like the, the simpler, more modern style. I think it, it started, you're right with the pulp era, um, keeping it simple. I, I dig that. So let's continue with the analysis of the reviews this time. Let's look at some of the positive ones. So one of the common themes in your reviews was that readers felt like the naval combat in your universe was extremely believable. So how do you plan to keep that up? 
while you're coming up with new and exciting uh, combat scenes and storylines? Well, it's a matter, uh, as I said before, of trying to keep it as real as possible, assuming this is actually happening and this is the ships they have and this is what they can do and this is what they can't do. And then trying to present a variety of scenarios. Uh, when I finished the initial Lost Fleet series and uh, um, readers asked for follow-ons, um, the, the traditional science fiction path of going back to the Skylark of Space stuff is you just keep making things bigger and bigger, bigger fleets, bigger ships, etc. And I didn't want to do that because, you know, it's an endless thing and it gets ridiculous. So instead, uh, I actually shrank the number of ships he had to deal with and um, presented him with some unconventional warfare situations. You know, basically trying to show that there's this infinite variety of challenges uh, that you have to confront using um, these tools, the ships, which are fairly versatile, the ships, the Marines, the sailors. Uh, but at the same time, there's limitations on what he can handle. So basically trying to show a wide variety of situations rather than repeating the same ones over and over. Okay. So um, other reviewers loved the way you uh, wove the world building with the backstory of the Alliance into the story. Was that something you initially intended to do? That Did you have out the Alliance plotted out like as a character almost? Or was that something that just came naturally to you as you wrote? Kind of both. I had I had a general idea of what the Alliance was and uh, the sort of things they cared about. But at the same time, things developed as the story uh, grew. And uh, so I let them come in and I let the story grow that way. So it was, it was a combination. Okay. Now, does that, do you find that's getting harder and harder to keep track of as you get deeper into this universe? <laughs> well, that's one of the reasons I did the Genesis fleet uh, to... to uh, establish this kind of firm reference base. This is this is how the alliance started. This is why the alliance started, and uh, that helps uh, clarify what's going to happen, you know, in the future. That's one of the things I like that you did, and we can't you can't answer it too much because it would um, be a spoiler. But uh, you didn't just have oh we lost contact with Earth and it's just this mystical planet. Like you addressed it, Earth still exists. It just wasn't the the setting for your series. I really dug how you did that. Oh, thanks. Was that was that something you thought you did? Was that something that spur of the moment, or was that something you always intended it that way? No, that that was always intended that the Earth would be out there, but it was uh, kind of uh, a backwater place. Now uh, it's tired. It's worn out. <laughs> it, uh, you know, you people want to fight your wars. You go out and do it. Leave us alone. Uh, but at the same time, it's this object of veneration because. Uh, all of humanity sees Earth as this is this is the home of our ancestors. This is where we came from. So it's this combination of a, a backwater place and yet also an immensely important place that most people never get to. Okay. So finally, the last uh, mention of reviews uh, was that many of your view reviewers love that you didn't have gratuitous sex or foul language. <laughs> so was this intentional on your part or did you intend to avoid all of that in the novels? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty much intentional. Um, you know, for the language, you know, we're, we've been in the military. We know what how people talk in the military. Uh, is, you know, it's almost constant. And yet at the same time, it doesn't really mean anything because you're saying it constantly. Um, so, and yet it gets, if you write it down, it gets in the way of dialogue and everything else. 
So what I tried to do with this and, and other uh, stories is to get the feel for how someone talks, the feel for how people in the military talk to each other, um, the, the cadence of their speech, the things they say, how they say them, and then how the individual subgroups in the military talk. You know, pilots talk one way, combat engineers talk another way, Marines talk a certain way. And uh, that was my goal, to, to get the feel for how they speak rather than try to stick literally to how they speak. And I think that's uh, worked out pretty well. I've heard from more than one veteran who said they were on their second or third reading of the book before they realized, hey, you know, there's no F words in here. Yeah, um, <laughs> that surprised me too. I had to go back and check when I was scouring the reviews for this part of the show prep. <laughs> yeah. And then sex, you know, it's just um, my general feeling is if, if somebody knows what's going on, they don't need me to tell them. If they don't know what's going on, they shouldn't be learning from me. Um, <laughs> And and uh, a lot of sex scenes tell you way too much about what turns on the guy who's writing it, which is also a little uncomfortable at times. But basically, I mean, it's uh, it's usually not necessary to the story. Um, so if uh, there had been a need for a scene like that, I would have put it in. But uh, I never saw a need for it. So uh it's not in there you know just putting it in because oh you've got to have sex in the the book to sell these days well obviously not um it just depends whether the story needs it and uh so far my stories haven't needed it i did like that because it lets me you know i'm always looking for so my son my oldest is 12 he's a very advanced reader mm -hmm. but he's not as mature as his reading level you know, they don't match. And so sometimes what he can read um, skill level is not necessarily appropriate. So it's, it's a balance. Yeah. I like that. I could let him read these. So, and I couldn't, I couldn't put sex in mind because my mom is my, one of my first readers. And so <laughs> the first time um, I had my prequel to my first series had a one sex scene. So I could set up down the road that he had kids out there. Uh, and my, my mom sent it back. She said, I don't know what you and your wife are doing, but you're not doing it right. And then she edited the heck out of it. <laughs> and I was like, okay, that's it. No more. So now I fade to black. <laughs> yeah. So I, I appreciate that about your book. So before we wrap this up, are there any updates for other forms of media that's going to come out in this universe? Uh, RPGs, movies, video games. We already know about the graphic novel, but is there anything else coming? Well, there's uh, an outfit working on an RPG, but it's not for lust fleet it's for uh the starks war series um as far as um movies or series uh we finally signed a contract with um people in the industry who are going to try to sell it as uh, a series um that's maybe a ways down the pike i don't know whether we'll actually see anything come of it all i can do is cross my fingers hope that it does happen and if it does happen that i get a a nice respectful treatment rather than a uh, starship troopers movie out of it. Um, if you, but, uh, if you're not familiar with the starship troopers book and you watch the movie, it's a good movie. Uh, so I went into it. I didn't know anything about starship troopers until I watched the movie and I liked it. I like campy, cheesy B movies. Mm -hmm. um, I, I can accept, however, the complaint that they're not the same stories. Yeah. They're <laughs> they just, just not the same name. story at all. You know, they just share a name. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So was there anything about the Lost Fleet series or um, Dauntless in particular that you wanted to uh, tell us about before we moved on? 
Um, well, just that I'm uh, um, extremely grateful that uh, it's it's coming across as well as it does. Um, what I always aim for is to present as realistic an image of the military as possible. And I do that for two reasons. Uh, one, for those who have served, I want them to show that I'm respecting their experiences and, and trying to um, portray it properly. And then also for the uh, increasingly large percentage of the population who haven't served, I want to show them what it's really like, not a cartoonish vision of the military, but this is the sort of people and this is the sort of things they encounter and their, their challenges and day-to-day and -day life and stuff. Um, so that's always been a big part of my writing to try to uh, present that real experience uh, for everyone. Okay. So now on to the genre question. So you've set this story in the space opera subgenre of science fiction. So what is your biggest pet peeve when you read other books that uh, tell sweeping space sagas in the subgenre? Remember to speak generally, please, because karma is a thing. <laughs> well, that's probably related to the, the, my last answer that, um, you know, when you see a totally cartoonish military uh, who's uh, acting in ways that are totally ridiculous, <laughs> Um, that that really gets to me, throws me out. You you can forgive a lot of things, but when uh, the basic uh, culture is wrong, and uh, everybody seems to be um, uh, stand up cardboard figures, um, that's a little hard to bear with. Okay. Well, following that, what about uh, space opera as they should be written? Who are your favorites? Um. Well, Elizabeth Moon writes very well. Um. Lee Brackett is simply amazing for her use of the words. Um, Norton, Heinlein. Uh, there's so many good people out there these days. Uh, Tanya Hoff, um, Mike Moscow. Um, one of the, the odd things about being a writer is you become a writer because you love to read, and then you become a writer and you don't have much time to read anymore. <laughs> yes. So, I, I can't keep up with the field as much as I'd like to. That's where audiobooks are saving me because when I go for my walks, that's my time where it's just me in solitude. Yeah. So that's why I didn't realize the maps were a thing because I listened. Um, did you get any say in the uh, narrator? Because he did. Uh, they did an amazing job. No, I just lucked out when it came to Christian Rummel. He's he's an extremely good reader for the Lost Fleet. Yeah, yeah. I actually had him. Narr he narrated one of my books. He's he's amazing. What surprised me though is when I when they sent me his samples, they showed some of what he's done for Sanderson, and then he, they actually yours was one of the samples they sent. And it's it's almost like if you didn't know it was him, it's like two or three different people reading because his range is so great. Mm -hmm. It's very yeah. impressive. So the next question was going to be about what you didn't like about the subgenre of space fleet military sci-fi, but you answered that above. So let's talk about space right. fleet done right. Um, who has the best or most compelling stories of naval battles in their science fiction? Obviously, you give yourself top billing, but who would be your second pick? Oh, naval battles. Um, <laughs> um, well, Elizabeth Moon again. She definitely comes to mind. Um, Jeez, it's hard to pick them out. So many of them um, focus on, well, you know, ever since Star Wars came out, you've got the space fighter thing going on. And that's very widespread, but it doesn't make any sense. So uh, people can write 
good stories with space fighters, but I still have trouble accepting it. Um, um, CJ Cherry, she's done some very good stuff. Um, I just read one from uh, um, David Mamet, Planetside. Uh, he's he's a vet too. Um, so that was well done, I thought. All right. I will throw all of those, dear listener, in the show notes so you can check them out yourself. Um, so more generally, do you prefer the Space Marine or Space Fleet side of military science fiction as a reader? Uh, uh, both. I, I like doing both. Um, there's um, They're different stories, uh, in some ways similar stresses, and yet... Uh, and yet also different challenges. So um, I, I like writing both, being able to to mix it up, to show the, the ground action and the space action or the, uh, the Marines boarding a ship and, and dealing with that. Um, I, I enjoy the opportunity to tell stories in both ways. Okay. So speaking of military science fiction, your bio mentions that you served in the U.S. Navy as an officer after graduating from Annapolis. So we asked this of all authors who were also veterans, but how do you feel like your time in the Navy affected the stories you tell? Well, I already talked about how it, um, you know, the experience helped me figure out uh, the mechanics of, of the space battles. Uh, but other than that, um, just... Um, the incredible variety of people you meet, um, the fact that the military forces you to do things that you normally probably wouldn't have chosen to do, you know, like uh, spend a lot of mornings watching the sunrise while you're standing watch, um, or watch a lot of midnights go by while you're standing that watch. Um, uh, learned a lot of technical things, uh, practical applications of, of equipment, uh, how to use them in action. Uh, leadership lessons uh, in, in a wide variety of settings. Uh, the encounters with uh, different cultures, by which I mean not just uh, different countries, but also different militaries. Um, you know, the Air Force is quite a different culture than uh, the Navy is. Um, and uh, it, it had an immense impact on me in terms of understanding that how you see the world has a huge um bearing on the questions you ask, the answers you accept, and the way you see things. Um, and that, I think, goes into everything I write. Plus, I very much want to portray the challenges of leadership um, and reflect the good leaders I worked for and um, uh, throw in some bad examples I encountered as well. So do you ever draw from people you knew in the military? Uh, generally, um, I mean, always, but, uh, generally it's a, in a composite sense. I rarely use a, a direct, um, one for one comparison. The exception of that was uh, the four books in the Jagged Space series, which were, um, the most directly based on my military experience. And, and there are s several characters in there that are directly, um, based on, on people I, I knew and worked with. All right. Well, enough about your books, Jack. Shameless plugging is over. So what are you reading in the genre of science fiction right now? Well, I mentioned David Meme's Planet Side. Um, I just got another book from... Uh, I, I have no idea how good it is because it was sent to me to, to maybe provide a bur blurb. It's called Providence by Max Berry. And uh, I'll have to see um, how that comes out. Um the other stuff I'm reading isn't actually science fiction. It's uh, 
Um, Mike Cole had, had brought out a book called uh, Phalanx versus Legion about ancient warfare, which is pretty interesting, useful in, in fantasy scenarios. And uh, I was rereading um, a book by Svetlana Alexievich called The Unwomanly Face of War, which is uh, interviews with uh, Russian women who fought on the Eastern Front in World War II. Uh, which is just a very powerful, uh, interesting book, just full of uh, research for uh, feelings and uh, experiences, everything else. Uh, highly, I highly recommend it. Okay. So finally, dear listener, we like to remember the science that makes science fiction fun. However, because of scheduling issues and my kids getting ready to start school, we're recording this way in advance. So we're going to... Um, Make this up to you, dear listener, by having a panel in the not-too-distant future on hard science fiction. But um, we've already got the show notes written and everything. So instead, though, today, um, the news articles that we might quote would be outdated way before you get this. So instead, I'm going to ask you this, Jack. If you could command any spaceship in any sci-fi literary universe, what would you choose and why? Um, well, if it couldn't be my universe, <laughs> my, um, for sentimental reasons, I'm sure it'd be the original Star Trek uh, Enterprise uh, from the original series, um, just because that had, uh, I was, you know, still young, and that had a strong impact on me, and, uh, you know, the characters of Kirk, Spock, and McCoy are, are very iconic, um, so that's probably the one. Okay. And one more uh, before we hit the road. So if there was any spaceship in any sci-fi literary universe you would not want to command, what would it be? Um, it would be the Enterprise in the uh, Star Trek reboot <laughs> that came out a few years ago, um, which was, uh, my gosh, what a mess. <laughs> <laughs> so... <laughs> Uh, my wife and I were watching that movie and, and we kept quoting from Galaxy Quest saying, you know, what is that doing on a spaceship? <laughs> it's just, um, that That's definitely a one I'd want to avoid. So if I was going to answer that, I'd have to say any um, ship in your universe. I loved the universe, but uh, sometimes your ships don't have long shelf lives. And uh, <laughs> no, no. they're on their third or fourth iteration in someone's lifetime of that ship because it got blown up that many times. So I, I definitely would not want to be on any ship named Unbreakable in your universe because I can't imagine good things would happen to it. Well, Invincible is his regard as a cursed name. That's it's, you know like they're challenging people and they keep getting blown up and then the fleet keeps refuses to accept defeat, so it names another Invincible. <laughs> was that a um, a conceit that you had planned, or is that just sort of something that happened? It kind of developed along the way. It, it just makes sense. It does, and that's why I thought it was so amusing. So uh, as we wrap this up, Jack, how can listeners find you? And as usual, dear listener, they will be in the show notes. Uh, the best place to contact me is my website, uh, jackcampbell.com. Um, and uh, there's, there's a link there, an email link, if someone wants to, to write to me. Uh, I'm also um, often on the uh, Facebook on the Fans of Lost Fleet series uh, group. Uh, so... That's those two ways uh, find out what's going on and uh, ask questions and everything else. 
All right. And you can find us, dear listener, on our website at www.sfshenanigans.com, our Twitter at SFS underscore show, Sierra Foxtrot Sierra underscore show, our email podcast at sfshenanigans.com, and our Facebook group, facebook.com backslash groups backslash SF Shenanigans. Thank you for spending some of your precious time with us. For Chris Winder and Saskia Smalls, I'm J.R. Hanley, and this was the Sci-Fi Shenanigans Podcast. We'll be back next week at the same time where we'll indulge our love of space and all things that go boom. All right. Thank you for sticking with us through that uh, archived episode that was in the uh, in the digital memory hole that we found. We thought you'd enjoy it. So thank you for spending some of your precious time with us. For Nick Garber and Doc Seska, I am J.R. Hanley, and this was the Archive for the Blasters and Blades podcast. We'll be back at our regular scheduled time where we'll indulge our love of nerd culture, cheesy jokes, and all things that go boom.